You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, I wanted to talk about a paper that's been on your mind a little bit, uh, Counterfactual Explanations Without Opening the Black Box, Automated Decisions and the GDPR. Kind of a mouthful. But, but tell me why you've been thinking about it. Why has this paper been on your mind? Um, and actually, this is uh, th- this paper interests me because um, uh, I think Chris Russell, you know, has got background in computer vision and machine learning. Um, one of the co-authors, Brent Mittelstadt, is uh, I think a philosopher by training, and Sandra Vokter is a lawyer. And Sandra um, and maybe Brent and uh, I think Luciano Floridi have previous papers on. Um, whether the right to explanation exists in the GDPR. And we've talked about the GDPR, so this is very relevant to a lot of uh, conversations we've had, um, which I believe influenced some of the framing of the law in some form or another. Um, And it was around like what it meant in legal terms, whether it was enforceable. Now, this paper, I think, uh, my understanding is it's trying to address um, how you can have uh, explanations, a form of explanation that um, doesn't put too strong a constraint on the um, uh, modeling side that allows the model to be a black box. Um, And it's certainly not a complete answer, but what I really like about this paper is it's got these different experts coming together. They they spoke about these ideas for a long time before they could all understand them and to propose something that is crossing this technical bound into law. So despite my rant about those talking about AI, here's an example of... I think a very interesting proposition. I don't think it's entirely practical in its current form, but I think that's okay as well. So a a counterfactual explanation, the way they try and approach it is they sort of say, so what you're looking for, the explanation in the GDPR, for example, uh, it's got to be a significant decision. So the example of a decision is, why was I turned down for this loan? Um, And what they describe in this paper is a practical approach to explaining why uh, in terms of a counterfactual, so in terms of the sort of an alternative reality in which you wouldn't have been turned down for the loan and what you would have had to have changed uh, for that to have come about. The interesting thing about this paper is they address uh, questions about how one might do that in practice with some ideas around that. Now, I, I don't think it works for very large feature sets, but the sort of thing you might end up doing is, you know, um, uh, if your income was £5,000 higher, then you would have been approved for the loan, right? So this this is interesting, right? Because they're addressing a real question there. Like, is that an explanation that an individual would be happy with? Um, is it valid under the model? Um, and um, does it would it satisfy the law? And, and, and their argument is that it is the sort of explanation. Because uh, I can't remember the criteria that they come up with, but it's sort of things like how you could change in order to sort of achieve it, um, sort of to know that it's not being discriminating. I, I don't recall all that, but it's this nice set of reasons why you want, uh, why explanations are important. They define those. And then they sort of look at how a counterfactual explanation um, might help fulfill in each of those cases. You know, there are limitations. If, if, if this was an image or something like this, you know, it's not really targeted at that, and I think it's an interesting starting point. So it's like, why was I Neil? Because this pixel here, you know, if you would be not Neil, if this pixel had been that, that's kind of like what it would end up doing. It makes no sense. And and but you know, they, there are still interesting questions about how you provide that explanation. And I think that they aim for the 
I don't recall the exact technical details, but it, I seem to remember they effectively find try and find a distance by which moving you would uh, um, have changed the classification. There's also limitations around what it means to do causal reasoning on your model versus the reality. So it's there's a sort of a two sides to it like the causal reasoning you're doing here is what would it change within the model not what would it change within reality and uh, I, th I think that that was a question put to Sandra which she was aware of when she presented the work at uh, Dali she was one of uh, Sandra did an amazing job at the Dali meeting of presenting this paper um, whether you agree with this approach or not they're a great example of a diverse team that's come together around a problem and are considering it from all angles. So that's what we want to see more of. We'll have a link to that paper, Counterfactual Explanations Without Opening the Black Box, on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is all about the reviewing process, and specifically the reviewing process at the NIPS conference. So, Neil, um, we, got, we basically got asked, how does reviewing work? Uh, and from my understanding, the reviewing process changes from year to year depending on how the papers committee wants to handle things. Is that right? That's to uh, a great extent true. The, a lot of... Um the responsibility for how that's run is devolved to the program chairs. And now there's a new system of program chair and program co-chairs. Mm. Um, uh, but if they want to make radical changes, then then that tends to also, they get advice from the board. But generally, the, the NIPS board sort of tends to believe that, you know, the, the responsibility for doing something also should come along with the uh, ability to change things in directions which I think is nice. Um, uh, so I, I can't speak specifically so much for this year, but I can mm -hmm. sort of say some of the issues that arose when uh, I was chairing it with Karina Cortez. Um, and so the big change we did for that year was the NIPS experiment, where we, uh, we took, I think, 10% of the papers. Um, can't remember the numbers now. Um, I think it's like 160 and duplicated them in the reviewing system and created two independent committees to um, review them. So we split the whole, we split the reviewers, we split the the area chairs, and uh, each of these papers went through the entire process independently. Um, and this was in 2016? Uh, 2014. 2014. I know, it's, it's time flies. So long ago. having fun. Yeah, I know, yeah, 2014. It was back in the days when machine learning was a small field with only 2,300 attendees or something, not 8,000. But we'd already grown like super exponentially. So in the year that um, Karina and I were doing it, we spent a lot of time selecting reviewers. So I wrote a lot of scripts, which are all online. You can see them. We started with like previous years. Uh, we tried to go through those names. Um, you're looking for area chairs to recommend uh, reviewers. And then we were still short of reviewers. So I think one of the things I was quite conscious of is was the lack of uh, diversity in the reviewing body versus, for example, the very few Chinese reviewers. Um, and so we got the list of people who had publications in NIPS in the previous year over a longer period of time. 
Uh, we looked at people who had more than two papers in NIPS. We brought them on board. And then it still wasn't enough. Um, we started looking at people with one paper in NIPS. And I individually went through an enormous list. I remember uh, searching for these people in DBLP and checking for their publication track record. A lot of these individuals turned out to be Chinese who weren't in the... Uh, and they're actually a little bit harder to search for because uh, often Chinese names um, with multiple potential authors. So I remember doing that. Um, and that's sort of process to get the reviewers in. So when we came to allocate reviewers, we made sure that there was... We, we sort of categorized reviewers as very as senior, those with like multiple NIPS papers. I can't remember what the number was. And we made sure every paper had at least one of those. I mean, what fascinated me about the NIPS experiment is I kind of knew going in that the process was stochastic just from program committees. And I was kind of keen to sort of see how stochastic and also get that to be wider known. Because I think when you're a submitter and you get reviews, and you're, oh, this is so disappointing. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's something about you, but often it's, you know, it's... It, it's um it's a stochastic process and interestingly if you look at reviewer instructions they're also um very um subjective they're not objective they're things like will be of wider interest to the field you know is innovative these are subjective things it's not you know is correct is sort of assumed um so you're asking three people um chosen from the community for their subjective opinion so it's no surprise three people right jury has 12 and I, that's probably not enough for a, a sample of uh, opinion on something right well we'll have a link on our website the talking machines to your writing on the nips experiment and some some writing for some other program chairs explaining how they have approached reviewing and selection and things like that and if you've got a question for talking machines you can tweet at us at tlkngmchns or write us at the talking machines at gmail.com Our guest today on this episode of Talking Machines is Sven Stroband, and he is the Chief Technology Officer at Coastal Ventures. And when we got a chance to sit down with him, we asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? Yeah, that's right. So I grew up in Germany, as you can probably hear by my accent, but I went to school in the U.S. and uh, did my master's and uh, PhD in Stanford. Actually not in, on the machine learning side, but on the HPC side. So I wrote uh, simulation software for semiconductor structures. So IBM and Intel were my PhD sponsors. Then after having solved uh, PDEs for a little bit too long in my life, <laughs> I decided I didn't want to solve PDEs anymore. And <laughs> I did what uh, every good German at some point in his career has to do, apparently, and joined a car company and joined VW and Audi. <laughs> And I did a bunch of different technical projects there, but probably the most fun was I became the lead engineer for the Stanford racing team. And mm. We built autonomous robots and uh, we got very lucky. One of the robots we entered in a race called the DARPA Grand Challenge and we, we won that particular race. And so that ended up in the Smithsonian Museum. And then I got recruited by a couple of venture funds, uh, joined a particular venture fund called Modavida Ventures, and then about five years ago got recruited to Coastal Ventures and became a partner there. And I have this weird addition to my title, CTO, which you can kind of replace with geek in residence. So I, <laughs> I like technical things. And from time to time, I'm on the other side of the fence. So I, together with a friend of mine, Richard, I started an AI company called MetaMind, which then got bought by Salesforce. So I ran this as the CEO. So, so as a person who comes from sort of a technical background, but is now involved in what is 
very exciting and some would say is driving a lot of the hype around machine learning, the, the venture capital world. What do you see are sort of the main themes that people are falling into when you start to work with companies, especially like small groups who are in machine learning? Well, there's this large level of excitement and often there seems to be a lack of what should my next step actually be? Hmm. So people can get very excited about next generation reinforcement learning, working on very small mm -hmm. uh, uh, shown examples and immediately make the jump to, and therefore we're going to have robots that can do basically everything <laughs> from putting you know, the dishes away in the dishwasher to working in factories and so on. It's hard to draw the line between that value proposition. Exactly. And in, a, in, in an academic paper, you can kind of do this dot, 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 mm -hmm. you know, and then hence we have the robots. But if you're trying to do a company, the company needs to do something relatively immediately useful mm. and then can grow up to do bigger and bigger things as a as a function of time and mm -hmm. that that discussion seems to be a little bit missing at least in my experience and that's something i wish we we, we had a little bit more of what is kind of the next climbable step so we can get the right to do the next bigger thing have you seen anybody do that well get from sort of the first level and then say ah here is the next step and then we see the third step yeah so one example here is a former portfolio company of ours. I, I used to be their advisor when they were still in Stanford, actually. Hmm. Uh, it was a company called Blue River. And Blue River builds robots for agriculture. Hmm. And so, in essence, it has a bunch of pods. They get dragged over a field by, by a tractor. And it contains a vision system that looks at every plant and decides to spray this plant or not spray this mm, plant. Mm -hmm. And the company got started in a very narrow field in agriculture called salad thinning. When you grow salad, what you do is you over-provision the number of seeds because you don't mm. know which ones germinate. Right. And then some germinate, but that means some of the plants are too close together. So what you do once they germinate, you have an entire bus full of humans show up and they basically correct the spacing. Got and it. we got started just dragging this robot across the field and it would kill all the plants that were too close together mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just solve that particular problem. Mm. Now, salad thinning really isn't the most exciting problem in the world, Useful, I would Useful, but say. not sexy. Yeah. yeah, and it's also not the biggest market in, in, mm, in, mm -hmm. in the world. However, in order to do this, we got to do something useful. We got paid, which is an important thing in a company yeah. and probably most importantly we got robust to all the other things that had nothing to do with just the pure ml side mm. so for example it turns out these fields are super dusty mm -hmm. and the camera systems fail and mm. you're in the middle of the sun and the lighting conditions are weird right and it turns out the fields can be muddy and the wheels slip and your wheel encoder won't work right and so there's a whole bunch of things your electronics get rattled around and all the connectors come loose and all of these things are, are, are true. And we kind of needed to cut our teeth in this market first. And then we started to do cotton. Mm -hmm. And once you start to do cotton, corn, soybeans, and so on, this becomes a very different thing. Because now all of a sudden the discussion is, well, the largest input of a farmer really is chemicals these days. Right. If you could reduce the use of, uh, of herbicide by 90% by only spraying the plants you want to kill as opposed to doing this broadcast spray of Roundup. Yeah. That is an interesting thing all of a sudden, but we kind of needed to climb there 
one by one. Mm -hmm. And uh, now the company is bought by John Deere, mm. which, which will take it even further. But you get the right to do the next bigger thing by succeeding in the earlier thing. And some of the earlier things might not look as world dominating <laughs> in right. the very beginning. Right. Yeah. So, so what? So, I mean, I th from my point of view, a lot of these startups are coming out of academia, right? Are coming mm -hmm. out of labs, are being developed there in that sort of mind space. So, what what do you suggest to people who are in that context f to better hone their skills at identifying those ladder rungs instead of jumping straight from, well, I'm working on topic modeling, so of course we're going to be able to create a a system that sounds exactly like a human and is totally indistinguishable in six months. So, how so how do you how do you get into that mindset? So we actually have an analog here, which is you have a certain technology and you're trying to figure out what to apply it first to. Mm -hmm. And you can think about this as the sort of British roundabout where you go around the roundabout and kind of peek into all the streets that go off from this roundabout. And you can run these sort of small experiments by basically figuring out, well, if it only did that, not really the world domination thing, but like uh, only like that, is that actually valuable for people to pay for? Mm. How would it need to look like? Yeah. How difficult is it really to sell? How hard would that be to make yeah. in a scalable way? You can peek into these corners. And you're typically better off going around the roundabout a couple of times till you figure out what actually works. Mm. And that's kind of your initial beachhead. And I like this analogy a lot because in my experience, the correct solution is not really found in a conference room where people have strong opinions, we should do X or we should do Y. The honest to God truth lies in actually trying it out, not full bore, but actually sampling these areas mm. and then making a, a more informed decision that's actually based on some data. So mm. that's the first thing I would, would say. And we do this kind of as a standard procedure with a lot of our seeds. The second thing is, I'm actually a big fan of cheating. And by <laughs> I mean cheating in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. Certain problems are very difficult to solve in their entirety. And you might only be able to solve a subset of the problem. And you just have a couple of solutions where maybe for a portion of it, there's actually humans in the loop mm -hmm. that have to do it. Or maybe in robotics, well, there's actually a small amount of jigging that fixes the plane these objects can actually be in. Is that very elegant? No. Is that what... Uh, good roboticist would want? Certainly not. Can you publish a paper about, you know, basically a metal bar? Clearly not. But it might make the system work. Right. So I'm okay with all cheating that is later on removable, mm. but allows me to actually get into the market. Got it. So as an example, if you, let's say, um, have a little bit of jigging on a robotics line, and that allows you to actually deploy the system to the customer and get all the data from the customer that makes your system better. Right. So you can, in the end, remove almost all of the jigging. In my book, that's a win. Hmm. And that, in my mind, is good cheating. And I, I like these sort of strategies. Often, to pure academics, it feels a little impure right, to, to right. do that. It feel, really feels like cheating. But this sort of cheating, I'm actually okay with. Yeah, yeah. Anything that actually like lets you test it out in the real world, get some feedback on how you might actually solve that problem. Right. It is a, maybe a little bit more 
spoken like an engineer than a scientist. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. It is a little bit more practical. This is the current solution. So you just need to solve this right. particular right. thing. Right. right now. Yeah, definitely. So from your point of view at Coastal Ventures, are you seeing any interesting trends this year or any um, sort of particular movement in terms of the ideas that are really exciting you? Well, robotics is certainly one of the mm. big ones. It mm -hmm. has been for a while, but... Uh, I think we are now at a phase where people are trying a lot of new things in order to surpass just very straightforward reinforcement learning. So where we get to a lot fewer examples that might be needed mm -hmm. and maybe more practical solutions. So this is probably one of the big areas and we have, have a big interest in that. I think another area that kind of continues to expand is on the medical side, and we yeah. now see it on the drug discovery side, but also on just pure medical data decision-making. Hmm. That has been going on for a while, but it used to be almost crazy to talk about it, and by now we're even approached by large hospital chains hmm. that think about this as a matter of course. So, ah. so this is becoming kind of interesting now. And then maybe the last thing is it seems like deep learning has made big inroads in NLP land now. Mm. In, in Vision, it is kind of already there, but uh, it's starting to make big inroads in NLP land, which I personally find exciting. So tell me more about the... Um, the, the I'm particularly interested in the, the medical applications and things like that. Do you think that these that the movement into this space is driven by the availability of data? And do you feel like we'll see other opening up of uh, context areas if data becomes available, like so available like it is in the medical and healthcare space? So data in medical is hard to get, mm -hmm. rightfully so. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a certain time lag associated with, uh, with, with getting it. But it used to be that it was hard to convince people of the potential value that right. it could have. And I think that barrier has fallen away. And mm -hmm. more and more folks that actually own the data are now thinking, about, well, what should we do responsibly with this data and what sort of programs should we really run on, on, on that? And that's kind of a, a big shift in mindset mm -hmm. because before that you needed to convince people of A, it is okay to learn from this data and B, it is actually valuable to right. learn from this data. Right. Part B, people now take for granted. So right. that's, that makes it a little bit helpful. So I think more and more of this data will come on, on, online now. Fantastic. Are, are you seeing the, the trends in computing power or the advances in computing power that we've seen recently have any effect on the questions that people are able to solve or the questions that people are even interested in asking? Yeah, to a certain degree. I, I would say we haven't had a, a massive shift quite yet, but mm. there is so much activity now on the hardware side right. too by large players like Intel and NVIDIA, but also myriads of startups um, so I think we're going to see way more of a Cambrian explosion for that going forward. Right now, still the workhorse of a lot of it is, is GPUs and CPUs. Yes, there are some TPUs in this world, but the majority workhouses are, uh, are still GPUs and CPUs. But we're going to see a lot more of that. So I, it's going to get more interesting, I think, in the future. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Sven Stroband, Chief Technology Officer at Coastal Ventures. That's it for this episode of Trucking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.